Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and your host here on Last Week in the Church. This is the program where we channel our inner prospectors. We break out our tin pans and sluice through the torrent of Vatican and global church news over the past week, looking for those few nuggets of gold. Here is what we've grabbed for you this week. First, a row over refugees as Italy struggles with record numbers of new migrants and refugees arriving on its shores. The Pope is celebrating the role of NGOs that engage in seaborne rescues, a role that is becoming increasingly controversial. We'll explain. Second, reform of the reform. The Pope tweaks his own new law intended to hold bishops and other superiors accountable for their handling of sex abuse cases. Supporters say it's another indication the Pope is for real. Critics say it's not nearly enough. We'll take a look at that debate. Third, of Europe and America, the European bishops choose a new leader who has a profile remarkably similar to the profile of the new leader the American bishops chose last November. So why is the public reaction to these two results so dramatically different? We'll try to figure out what's going on there. Fourth, exit strategy for a lightning rod. Rumors in Rome are that the Pope is about to send packing German Archbishop Georg Ganswein the controversial secretary to the late Pope Benedict XVI, will explain why, if that's indeed the case, it's really no more than business as usual. Fifth, memories of a massacre. Italy's annual observance of one of the worst civilian atrocities of the Second World War and why it is sort of a metaphor for the lights and shadows of the church's movement through history. And then finally, Lessons in Limits, how a couple of recent stories have illustrated some hard lessons in the limits of papal power. All that is waiting for you on this week's episode, so please stick around. Crux wishes to thank our advertising sponsor, Renew International, for their support of Crux and this episode of Last Week in the Church. Learn more about Renew International and their new faith-sharing resource, Creation at the Crossroads, at renewintl.org. Well, welcome back. Thank you for being with us. Happy Tuesday to you, everybody. Happy Tuesday, March 28th. We begin this week, as it was a very busy news week, we begin with a row over refugees. So Italy in the first part of 2023 is once again coping with record numbers of new arrivals, migrants and refugees. In this case, mostly people making the, attempting to make the crossing over the Mediterranean from Tunisia. Some of them Tunisians fleeing that country's political and economic chaos. Many of them people from sub-Saharan African nations who have made their way up to Tunisia trying to get into Europe. Just this past weekend, so from Friday night through Sunday night, more than 3,300 people were rescued by the Italian Coast Guard on 58 separate boats that had taken off from Tunisia trying to get across the Mediterranean. So far, in the first three months of 2023, Italy has accommodated more than 20,000 people. If that were to keep up throughout the year, it would break the record set in 2016 at the peak of the European refugee crisis. While all this is going on, this past week, Pope Francis received in audience an NGO called Mediterranean Saving Humans. This is one of those NGOs that operates a rescue boat. It's called the Mario Jonio. It's an old tugboat from 1972 that's been converted into a rescue vessel that sets off into the Mediterranean and tries to pick up 
these desperate migrants and refugees who were often on you know, these, these dangerous, overcrowded, flimsy little boats trying to make their way across the sea. Now, one level you could say that that is a magnificent humanitarian service, but what critics claim is that some of these NGOs anyway are actually doing this for profit, that they're trawling the Mediterranean looking for people that they can pick up and then looking to get paid off for having done that. In effect, these critics say, that these NGOs are fueling illegal immigration and acting as kind of surrogates or accomplices of human traffickers. The group that the Pope received this week, Mediterranean, is actually currently under investigation in Sicily, allegedly in 2021. They were paid $135,000 by a Danish oil company. One of their tankers had rescued 25 migrants. They were then turned over to this NGO that then dropped them off at a port in Italy. They would argue that was doing their humanitarian duty. Critics say that was a payoff for basically breaking Italian law. In any event, it's pretty clear whose side has Pope Francis's heart in this debate. He didn't say much during this audience. It was a private meeting. No transcript of his remarks were released. Nevertheless, after the fact, one of the leaders of this group revealed that he and the Pope had talked about the reactions of the current Italian government to a tragedy that recently took place off the coast of southern Libya in which 91 migrants lost their lives when their boat shipwrecked. And the conversation was not particularly positive about the role of Italy's current center-right government, which is attempting to enforce some fairly tough anti-immigrant measures. In any event, all signs are that this debate is going to continue. Pope Francis will continue acting as the primary voice of conscience for migrants and refugees on the global stage. All right, second, reform of the reform. So in 2019, Pope Francis decreed a new statute for the Catholic Church called Vos Estes, comes from that line in the gospel that you are the light of the world. And basically, it was a new set of rules intended to hold bishops and religious superiors accountable for their handling of sex abuse cases. That is to provide a legal mechanism for punishing bishops if they knew about abuse but failed to act appropriately. It was hailed at the time as a dramatic step forward in the push for transparency and accountability in the fight against sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. Pope Francis recently issued a set of revisions to this law this past week, first of all making it permanent because when it was issued in 2019, it was on a sort of trial basis, it's now permanent. Among the major changes the Pope made, first, he has indicated the law will now apply to lay leaders in the church, as well as bishops and religious superiors. This in the wake of a couple of high-profile lay organizations whose lay leaders since 2019 have been revealed to have been engaged in patterns of abuse that would include Jean Vanier, the founder of the L'Arche community, also Luis Fernando Figari founder of the Sodality of Christian Life. Another major change is that in addition to minors, vulnerable adults have also been listed as potential victims of abuse for whom this law would apply. Now, as I said at the top, you know, fans of the Pope's approach are saying this is another indication of how seriously Pope Francis takes the fight against abuse. Critics, on the other hand, fault this law of Vos Estes and also the amendments to it 
on a number of fronts. Run, they say it is still bishops policing other bishops, so it's the old boys network in action. Two, they say there is no requirement that bishops have to become mandatory reporters. It simply says they should report abuse to the police and other authorities if that is the law of the land in the place where a bishop is located. Third, they say there is no requirement that bishops have to make public accusations of sexual abuse. Fourth and finally, they say the law simply isn't being applied. The group bishopaccountability.org, for instance, has done a study claiming that of more than 5,600 Catholic bishops in the church since Fosestis was decreed in 2019, only 40 have actually been investigated, and only half of those cases was any sort of punishment imposed. Usually it was just a quiet resignation. No superior or bishop, they say, has been laicized, that is expelled from the priesthood. None have even lost their titles, this group claims, as a result of Vosestis. So the debate over how effective this law and its most recent amendments are will go on. You know, I think most observers would probably say that Francis has moved the ball much further than it was when he inherited the church 10 years ago, would probably also say there is still some work left to be done. All right, third up this week of Europe and America. So the European bishops this week elected a new president for their organization called Commissaire. Basically, it's a group of the Episcopal Conferences of the European Union. And that new leader is Italian Bishop Mariano Crociata of the Diocese of Latina. Latina is a small town in the region of Lazio. It's about 45 miles or so south of where we are sitting right now in the heart of Rome. Now, what is interesting about this is that Crociata's reputation is as basically a center-right guy prelate that is moderate to conservative, who came up as the protege of a very powerful, influential, conservative Italian cardinal. In his case, Italian cardinal Angelo Bagnasco, who for many years was the president of the powerful Italian bishops' conference, Che. Now, I note all this because last November, the American bishops elected their own new president, Archbishop Timothy Broglio, head of the military archdiocese in the States. What's his background? Well, he was a center-right prelate who was the protege of an influential conservative Italian cardinal. In his case, Italian Cardinal Angelo Sedano, who had been the Vatican Secretary of State under Pope John Paul II. Brolio, for a time, had been one of his secretaries. So you've got two guys, basically, whose reputations are identical, whose profiles are identical. Yet when Brolio got elected, this was spun far and wide as a huge act of defiance by the American bishops. You know, Americans vote for anti-Francis president was the headline in a lot of places. When the Europeans elect Crociate, it has generated nothing but yawns across the board, basically no reaction whatsoever. Why? Well, I would submit to you folks, it is a lesson in the power of narrative. The narrative about the American bishops is that they are conservative opponents of Francis. The narrative about the European bishops is that for the most part, they're liberal, if anything, even more liberal than Pope Francis. I mean, look at what's going on in Germany, right? So the idea that the Americans would elect somebody who was not on the same page with Francis, that makes a lot of sense to the media, and so we play it up. The idea that the Europeans would do something like that doesn't compute, and so we kind of ignore it out of cognitive dissonance. You know, 
I don't really think there's any other compelling explanation for why the reaction has been so vastly different. Anyway, it will be very interesting to see what Bishop Crochata does in his new role as the elected head of the European bishops. All right, fourth up this week, exit strategy for a lightning rod. So by now, we all know the name of German Archbishop Georg Ganswein, the longtime priest secretary to Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger when he was the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and then to Pope Benedict XVI when Ratzinger was elected to the papacy following John Paul II in 2005. Of course, when Benedict died recently on New Year's Eve, Ganswine had his 15 minutes of fame with the release of a new book and also a number of media interviews, the gist of which in, in many parts was to emphasize differences between Pope Benedict and his successor, Pope Francis. Many people thought Ganswine was in effect kind of fueling a civil war in the church. Rumors now are that Ganswine is going to be sent packing from Rome. The rumor, hot rumor in Rome, is that he is about to be named the new apostolic nuncio, that's papal ambassador, in the Central American nation of Costa Rica. Now, when and if that happens, it's going to be spun as a kind of dramatic exile, Pope Francis putting one of his critics in the deep freeze. And look, there's absolutely nothing I can do to stop that process. It is baked into the cake of how the media is going to handle this situation. But can I just inject one note of perspective, which is, assuming this happens, it will be absolutely par for the course. Let's look at what happened to the priest secretaries of the handful of popes that preceded Gainswine and Benedict. So, Loris Capavila, the priest secretary to John XXIII, he was made the prelate of the Holy House of Loreto, and after his retirement lived in Soto del Monte, near Bergamo, the hometown of John XXIII. Pasquale Macchi, the private, the priest secretary to Paul VI, was himself made the prelate of the Holy House of Loreto, and then, in retirement, lived in Brescia, the hometown of Paul VI. Don Diego Lorenzi, who was the priest secretary to Pope John Paul I, the, priest, the Pope of 33 days, was, he's a Don Orione father, and after his papacy was over, ended up doing time serving in a Orione mission in Manila in one of the largest slums in the world, a real sort of riches to rags story. Don Diego is now in retirement in a religious institute outside of Milan. Don Stanislaw Jivish, the priest secretary to Pope John Paul II, was made the Archbishop of Krakow and then a cardinal, continues to live in Poland. Moral of the story, Priest secretaries, when their popes die, are inevitably seen as symbols of the Anshan regime, right? The old administration. And so the most natural thing in the world is to give them some kind of a gig outside of Rome so that they are not a distraction and they do not become a lightning rod for division. The thing that made Gainswine anomalous, quite honestly, was that his pope didn't die. His pope resigned. And so Gainswine remained by his side in the Vatican for the decade after that fateful decision. But the truth of it is, looking back, maybe the thing that would have made more sense would, be, would, would have been to send Gainswine away immediately. In any event, if that happens now, it is not going to be an anomaly. It is going to be a return to form. All right, fifth up, 
this week. Memories of a massacre. So, this past week, March 24th, Italy marked the, its annual observance of the anniversary of the massacre in the Fosse Ardeatine. Fosse is the Italian word for cave. So these are the Ardeatine caves just outside Rome. In 1944, a group of Italian partisans, that is, people who were resisting the German occupation of Rome and of Italy, attacked a column of German soldiers here in the city of Rome, not far from where we are sitting, actually, a small Roman street called the Via Rosella. In the end, 33 German troops died in that attack. In reprisal, Adolf Hitler himself personally ordered that 10 Italians had to be executed for every one German who died. So basically what the German occupiers did is they emptied the jails of all the political prisoners they had at that moment. They didn't have quite enough to get to 330, so they added in about 70 Jews who were just kind of randomly rounded up and other dissidents and perceived troublemakers. In the end, 335 people were trucked out to the Ardeatine caves, their hands bound behind their back. They were then made to kneel. They were shot in the back of the head. When the killing was over, German engineers detonated bombs to seal the caves, so the remains of the victims were not actually recovered until after the liberation of Rome. It was one of the worst civilian massacres during the Second World War, and as I say, it is it continues to, to sort of haunt Italy to this day. Now, if you are looking at this situation through Catholic eyes, here's an interesting point. The SS captain who presided over those executions, a guy by the name of Eric Priebke, fancied himself a faithful Catholic. When the war was over, he escaped Europe thanks to a Catholic bishop in Rome by the name of Alois Hudol, who operated the infamous rat lion, providing fake immigration papers to ex-Nazis to help them get out of the country. Pripke relocated to Argentina. He was eventually arrested after an ABC News report by Sam Donaldson and then extradited back to Italy to stand trial. During that, and then he was eventually sentenced to life imprisonment, house arrest, life imprisonment. During that entire period, he continued to be a faithful mass-goer. When he died, the Vicariate of Rome banned a funeral for him in any Roman church, but the Society of Pius X, the breakaway Latin mass group, celebrated a funeral mass for Pripke with one of their priests describing him as a good Catholic. So you have an SS executioner and a bishop who operated a rat line as part of this story, but it is also worth remembering that one of the people who died in the Fosse Ardeatine was an Italian priest who was a champion of the partisans and who, after his arrest, actually gave up his meals in prison to people who were being denied food as a form of punishment. He became the model for the priest hero of the famous neorealist film in 1945, Roma Città Aperta, Rome Open City, which commemorates which captures the feel of Rome in those days. That character in that film was based on the priest who died in the Fosse Ardeatine and another Catholic priest who died a month later, who was also supporting the partisans and the resistance to the Nazis, and who was arrested, tortured, 
but under torture, refused to name any of his accomplices. He was accompanied to his death by the bishop who had ordained him to the priesthood, and his last words were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. By the way, the firing squad that executed him was composed of 12 Italian soldiers. Ten of them fired into the air rather than shoot this priest. The other two intentionally missed. The SS officer presiding over it had to pull out his own sidearm and put a bullet in the priest's head in order to kill him. My point is, the story of the Fosse Ardiatene is in microcosm the story of the Catholic Church in history. Shadows and lights, hero and heartbreak in roughly equal measure. Finally, two stories in the recent past which illustrate the limits of papal power. So, in late January, Pope Francis gave an interview to the Associated Press, two headlines out of that. One, he said, the German synodal path should not press ahead with approving things that are at odds with official church teaching. He called it an elitist and ideological exercise. Second, he said that homosexuality should not be criminalized. He said that those laws are unjust and bishops who support them should undergo a process of conversion. What has happened in the meantime? Well, in Germany, the Senate path has voted to, among other things, endorse the blessing of same-sex unions and direct defiance of a 2021 Vatican edict on the subject and the pleas of both Pope Francis and his own top aides. Meanwhile, in Uganda, the parliament just this past week approved the world's harshest anti-homosexuality law, among other things, that establishes a prison sentence for the mere crime of saying in public that you are gay. That law was adopted with the strong backing of Catholic parliamentarians in a country that in percentage terms is one of the most Catholic countries in Africa. Meanwhile, in neighboring Kenya, the Catholic bishops there have condemned a Supreme Court decision decriminalizing pro-gay groups, calling that an assault on life. Now, if Pope Francis were truly omnipotent and is all-powerful, if he had a magic wand and could control the church with merely by waving it, these two things would never have happened. You know, the problem in much Catholic reflection, I would submit, is that we consider the Pope both the cause of and the solution to all of our problems. Ladies and gentlemen, neither thing is really true. Most of the problems that we face in the church have not been caused by popes, and they are not going to be solved by popes. The fault, ladies and gentlemen, is not in our popes, but in ourselves. You can find full coverage of all of these stories on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com. Again, cruxnow.com, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. While you're on the site, please do, if you can, make a small financial contribution to help keep the lights on. We would appreciate it. We will be here next week, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.